because many of you have been so faithful to pray for her over the last several years, I will uh, let you know that yesterday, Kathy's grandmother, Lil, who lives in Buffalo, died. Um, yesterday morning, she passed away. So um, if you would pray for uh, my in-laws, Wayne and Linda, they were supposed to come and visit us today for uh, their Christmas visit, and I think they're going to come tomorrow, but um, my family would appreciate if you would pray for us. Uh, this event that I want to describe to you happened in 2006, but I just read about it, and it's about a young lady whose name was Angie, and she was on her way home for Christmas uh, to visit her family. In fact, she was flying. Millions of Americans, I read uh, one statistic, 16 million Americans fly during the holiday season. And she got on her plane in Chicago, and she was flying to Lincoln, Nebraska to go home. And as she uh, made it through the gauntlet of security and walked under the plane, she found that she was sitting next to uh, a young man she did not know, obviously. She sat down and introduced herself. She found out that his name was Ali. He was a 19-year-old man, and he was flying from Saudi Arabia, and he was going to start studies at, in the winter semester at the university at Lincoln, Nebraska. So she sat down and, and she started talking to him. This is what she wrote. She said, as soon as I heard that he'd never been in the U.S. before and was from the Middle East, I felt Jesus tugging at my heart. After a little chit-chat about his feelings, about being so far from home, and asking what he knew about American culture or life in Nebraska, I told him that I was a follower of Jesus. And then she said, this is clever. She said, you know, you're probably going to meet a lot of Christians while you're here, especially in Lincoln, Nebraska, and it would be good for you to know a little bit about what Christians believe. Can I tell you about what Christians believe? And he said, sure. So she had a little booklet in her, her pocket. Uh, we give out booklets like this a lot. In fact, if you're uh, visiting with us, you're welcome. And in, in, in the back, uh, the, the bag that you got, there's a little booklet called Two Ways to Live. We give that out to everybody who comes to visit us. She had a booklet in her pocket. It's called The Four Spiritual Laws. Many of you have heard that. So she sat down and she went through this very basic understanding of uh, Jesus Christ, who he is and what he came to do, and, and uh, page by page explained this uh, to him. She gave him the book to, to hang on to, and, and uh, as their conversation kind of faded, she picked up the book that she had brought to read with her on the plane, and as she began reading, she saw that Ali started to go through again that little booklet. And she says this, uh, I could hardly concentrate. I was so excited. I prayed for him as he was reading it, thankful to have been reminded this morning in the Word of God that God is the one who works convicting people of their need for him. After he finished reading, I asked him what he thought, and he said it was very interesting. So I got off the plane as they were making their way through the, the, the line again and going through. She, she said to Ali, she said, I, I'd like to pray for you if, if you wouldn't mind. And then, then she thought, well, I, I could just pray for him right now, right here. She said to herself, what's this young Muslim man going to think if I pray for him pu publicly to Jesus here in this concourse? But she did it anyway. And then she met his cousin, his cousin who had come to the airport to pick him up. And she said to them, you know, while I got this chance to meet you, you should really consider, there's this very unique American custom that I, I think you would really enjoy coming. Uh, it's a Christmas Eve service. And our church is having one tonight. I'd love for you to, to come, if you would. Listen to what she said. This is why I love being a Christian. It's heart-pounding scary at times, 
and exhilarating when I see someone that I know Jesus wants to come to him and I have the choice to step out in faith or stay in security. Uh, We're moving through the book of Acts uh, these days and it tells us, in fact, the whole book is built around this charge that Jesus gives. You shall be my witnesses. You shall represent me. That's what we do. We're Jesus' messengers, his witnesses. We tell people about who he is and what he's done, and we call them to believe in him. And up to this point in time, as we've been going through the book of Acts, this work that the church does takes place on large scales, grand meetings, huge crowds. That's where some of you heard the gospel for the first time. Maybe it was at a big crusade, or maybe it was at a a, a gathering of a a church, a large crowd that had gathered together, very similar to what's happening here right now. Some of you, though, heard the gospel for the first time in a very small conversation. Someone talked to you about Jesus. Maybe it was your parent or um, a friend of yours or a a co-worker, a very private one-on-one conversation. Today what we're going to do is we're going to learn in the book of Acts from one of those private type conversations in the book of Acts. It's actually the first private conversation about Jesus in Acts, and it's found for us in Acts chapter 8. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 8, if you would, this morning. Of course, you'll find the book of Acts in the New Testament, so definitely towards the second half of your Bible. The four Gospels begin at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts. If you're in one of the Corinthian twins, turn left. If you're in Romans, turn left, and you'll find the book of Acts. If you're in the concordance, definitely turn left. But Acts chapter 8 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. And the emphasis that we're going to find in this story that's here before us is we're going to find out how interested God is in having the message about Jesus spread. He is very interested in you doing in the church faithfully fulfilling this commission that we have received. God is not at all like Pharaoh. I don't know if you know this, but Moses and Pharaoh are making an appearance again in the movie theater this month. It's not Charlton Heston. Don't go look for Charlton Heston in the movie theater. But that story in the, in the book of Exodus is this, this conflict between Pharaoh and God over who has the most power, who has the authority to control what happens to these Israelites that are in Egypt as slaves. And at one point in time, Pharaoh is, is competing with God, and, and he says to the, the Israelites, he says, Um, You have to make bricks just like you've been doing it, but I'm not going to give you any straw to make the bricks. You fulfill my command, but you're going to have to find your own straw. God is not like Pharaoh. God has given us a command, but he also gives us all of the resources that we need to fulfill those commands. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, God is moving the church along and fulfilling this mission. In fact, there is no one who is more committed to our congregations faithfully fulfilling the mission to represent Jesus in Lancaster County than God himself. No one cares about it more than he does. No one wants you to more clearly present the gospel, explain the gospel to your coworkers and your family members than God does. That's very good news. That's news that should encourage you. I want to show you that, uh, how that works, but first I want to read this story. So Acts chapter 8, 
verse 26. And I'm going to read from verse 26 to the uh, end of the chapter. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake. Your text might say Candace. I'll explain that in a minute. Which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders, verse 38, to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, Azotus, and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, before we look specifically at what this passage uh, teaches here, let's set it in context. This is the second scene in which Philip plays a prominent role. Remember we talked about how Stephen sometimes gets overlooked in the early church? Philip probably does too. And Philip here at this point in time in Acts chapter 8 is leading the church in the charge. Jesus had said to his followers... You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapters 1 through 7, we have the testimony in Jerusalem and Judea. In Acts chapter 8, it's Philip who goes to Samaria. And then here now, he talks to this man who is from Ethiopia. Ethiopia, who was at, at that point in time, this country, was as far south as these Jews could conceive you almost might say that, that Philip here is preaching the gospel to someone who lives at the ends of the earth. Now, this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, the text says, is about as strange and as foreign to the Jews who knew Jesus as they could imagine. Uh, verse 27 actually tells us a lot about him. It lists all these facts. He's an Ethiopian. He was an African man. Now, uh, the Ethiopia that's referred to here is not the same country that's Ethiopia on our map. It's actually an ancient kingdom that is about where uh, Sudan is right now. If you were in um, Sunday school this morning, you heard uh, Johnny talking about some of the topography and geography of, of ancient Egypt. It would be in the uh, upper Nile region or the lower Nile region, the south. The Upper Nile region. I was paying attention. It was the Upper Nile region 
uh, about modern-day Sudan. Is where, regardless, it's a five-month journey from where this man lived to Jerusalem one way. Now, this man's a very interesting person in the Bible. He is, on the one hand, an insider, and on the other hand, he's an outsider. He's an insider in the fact that he was this high royal official in the kingdom of the Candake. Again, your text might say Candace. The Ethiopian kingdom at this point in time was ruled over by kings, but the kings were such sacred individuals that it was considered too beneath them for them to deal with the day-to-day administration of their kingdom. So the queen mother actually ruled the kingdom. My mother-in-law is coming to visit today. And uh, so uh, uh, the the queen mother... Now, uh, some translations say that her name was Candace. That's, That's probably not right. It's Candake, and that was her title. It was her official title. And this man was the, uh, uh, in charge of her finances. He was the financial secretary, or he was the secretary of the treasury. He was high in the administration in this kingdom. Up to this point in time in the book of Acts, this man is the most publicly prominent follower of Jesus. Do you remember that the book of Acts was written to a man by the name of Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, Theophilus who probably had some high-ranking role in the Roman government. Here's a man who is his social equal in the kingdom of the Ethiopians. He's an insider in the amount of power that he wields in his country. But he is also an outsider. He's an outsider in the sense that he was a eunuch, a man who was infertile due to castration. Uh, This was a very common, actually until even recent times, it was very common for some kingdoms to appoint men who are eunuchs to serve in high royal uh, positions. It was common throughout the world, but not never in Israel. Um, castration was not allowed under the law. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, this man would be considered a mutilated man. And as such, um, even if he was born a Jew, he could not go into the temple uh, area, one of the courtyards. He was an outsider as far as the law is concerned. He's an outsider who's at least been to Jerusalem to worship. He is interested in the God of Israel. He was on the edge of worshiping in the temple. He was getting as close as he could. Maybe even he was a proselyte. Uh, We don't know. But he was still an outsider. And here the gospel comes to him. Actually, what we're going to find in the next few weeks is here here's uh, uh, someone on the edge, just on the edge, who becomes a follower of Jesus. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the story of Saul, who was the ultimate insider. And then after uh, we celebrate Christmas, uh, uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Cornelius, a man who was really outside, who becomes a follower of Jesus. See, the gospel is spreading in the book of Acts. They're fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave them. That's That's how this story fits into the overall narrative. But it's here to teach us something significant about God's interest in the faithful fulfillment of his mission. He empowers, he guides, he directs, he supplies, he moves his people forward. And what I want to do is I want to show you from this text three things that God gives us in order to move the mission forward. Here is his interest that he has. 
First of all, God gives us direction. God gives us direction. Notice again how the text starts. Verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, go. And then in verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go. The Spirit of God is speaking and commanding him to move. This is a story about the initiative that God himself takes to get his people moving in the work he's given us. We've seen so far in the book how, how persecution moves the church out. Well, it's not just persecution that moves the church out. It's God himself. All the way through the book of Acts, he pushes people forward. No one in our church is more enthusiastic about our increasingly faithful and effective representative, representation of Jesus in Lancaster County than God himself. Now, you should have a question about this text, and I have, I have a question, too. Maybe you asked it, too. Why did God send the angel to Philip and send Philip instead of the angel himself going to the Ethiopian eunuch? Who do you think would have been the better evangelist, an angel or Philip himself? Or why did the Spirit speak to Philip in verse 29 and not to the Ethiopian eunuch himself? Why didn't the Spirit speak to this man? Why did he send Philip, he's certainly capable of doing so. Why wasn't that part of God's plan? Because it is God's intention to use his people to deliver his message. He wants to use you. He directs, he commands, he sends people like you. Now, I find this remarkably encouraging. I find, I find this concept in thinking about this story and how it unfolds remarkably encouraging. It's about the time of the year. In fact, uh, according to the, the calendar, we're a little bit behind in the process, but it's the time of the year for our church to nominate elders, men who are going to serve on the board of elders in our church. First uh, Timothy 3, the Bible tells us that elders are supposed to be gentle, not uh, uh, angry, violent. They're to serve, Peter tells us, willingly, gladly, not because they have to. The Bible warns us against angry, frustrated, um, grouchy elders. I understand why sometimes why elders can be uh, frustrated. Uh, you work and you work and you pray and you preach and you plan, and sometimes you don't feel like you're making any progress at all. I know a man who, who toward the end of his ministry, he would pepper his sermons with this phrase, I have been trying to tell you people. He'd say that a lot. It's a sign of a frustrated, angry pastor. I I, I understand how that feels. You know how that feels, don't you? uh, Sometimes it can feel like when you're parenting. This week I had a conversation with one of my children and it went something like this. I said to this child, I said with a little bit of edge in my voice, for the third time, get into bed. Instead of this child obeying, this child proceeded to engage me in a discussion about whether or not I had actually said it two or three times. (laughs) I am not a sanctified man. I said, I don't care how many times it is. It should only take once. Get into bed. One of us is not going to survive this child's childhood. 
I have been trying to tell you people. Right? Now, if the Spirit himself is at work, though, if it's true that God's Spirit is more committed and more interested and more passionate about us faithfully fulfilling our mission as a congregation than anyone else. There's joy in this work. Confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit, that he is interested and that he is at work, is what keeps elders from being angry. His work doesn't mean that elders are passive, but it means we work by faith in what he's doing. And confidence in the work of the Spirit will keep you from being an angry evangelist, too. So I find this directing work very encouraging. I also, frankly, find it challenging. Do you notice what, what Philip does here? At every point, the Lord directs and Philip moves. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south. Verse 27, so he started out. Verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stand near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and and heard the man. He, He immediately goes and obeys. And then we have this strange divine teleportation. You thought it was Gene Roddenberry who thought of it. No. The Lord takes Philip away, and Philip ends up at this town, Azotus, and just starts evangelizing again. Doesn't matter where God puts me, I'll speak his word. That's what he told me to do. Uh, If the Spirit directs, this passage is teaching us, if the Spirit directs me, my responsibility is to respond and obey. Do you? I don't know how the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip here. I don't know if it was audible or not. I don't know that. I've never heard the Holy Spirit speaking audibly to me. But I do know that there have been times in my life where I have had this deep conviction or very clear impulse that I could attribute to the Holy Spirit that I should speak, that I should step forward, that I should open my mouth and communicate the gospel. Has that ever happened to you? Do you ever respond to that? David Moore was a student at Stanford University. He was a member of a fraternity on campus. And he wanted to start a Bible study in his fraternity, but he wasn't really sure how to do it. He'd been thinking about it and pursuing it, but he wasn't sure. Well, one day he was walking around campus, and uh, he had a number of packages that he was taking to the post office. And as he was walking across campus, they have on the campus a platform. It's the free speech platform. Anybody can get on the free speech platform and speak. And there was a man who was standing on the free speech platform, and he was... Uh, had a Bible at least in his hand, and he was standing on the platform uh, very specifically talking about other people's sins, while at the same time he was talking about the fact that he didn't have any sins. Do you know what that Bible says that makes him? First John says he's a liar, not really representing the truth of the Bible. Well, uh, David was on a hurry. He was, he was in a hurry. He was running across campus, and he said, he said, uh, there was this still small voice that directed me to go and interact with this man. He said to himself, God, I don't have time to deal with a Yahoo like that. He had to go and mail his packages. He had classes to get to. He had things to get done. And, uh, he resisted for a while, and he went back, and he started talking to this man. And his first interaction with him actually led to a debate that several hundred students went to. 
And after the debate that David Moore had with this man, the president of his fraternity came up to him and said, you know what I think would be a great idea? I think you should start a Bible study in our fraternity. Because I think there's a lot of people who would probably be interested in, in what you, you have to say. David Moore said this, I don't even remember what was in the package that I'd been sent, uh, that I'd been posting, or who they were to, uh, but slowing down to hear God, I learned, can lead to ministry overlooked when we rush through life. God gives direction. Are you following God's direction? Now here's something else that God gives. God gives opportunity. God gives opportunity. We're not going to spend as much time here talking about this. But notice, God put Philip geographically right in the middle of a perfect opportunity to testify about Jesus. God places this Ethiopian eunuch reading the text, and he places Philip right at the right spot so that Philip has this open door to to speak to him about it. This is evidently, clearly a divine appointment. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 4, he said, please pray for me that God would give me opportunities like that. Look what Colossians 4, 3 says. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul prayed for open doors. You should pray for open doors too. On your way to the why or uh, to work, or on on the way to your club meeting, Lord, give me an opportunity, (laughs) open a door for me, and then give me the courage to actually walk through it. God gives opportunities. Philip Johnson is is a writer and a pastor, and when he was first ordained, he was assigned in 1969 to serve in Newfoundland, Canada, a very unusual church situation. There was one large church and ten smaller churches around it, and he was called to serve as the pastor of all of these congregations. Well, uh, the first time that he visited the farthest church, it was a long way out. He actually traveled 40 miles on a snowmobile to get to this tiny village where there was a small church building. And when he got there, only one person showed up for church that day. And uh, he he was a fisherman who had come in, himself had traveled 20 miles to come to church. And Johnson says, at first I was inclined to say, let's just, you know, call it a day. It's just the two of us. But then he said, I figured that we had combined traveled 60 miles to get there. We might as well have a service. So he did in this room with one person. They did everything. The scripture readings, the prayers, the songs. And as Philip Johnson was going through it, he, he was preaching a sermon, and that's when he got most discouraged, because while he was preaching it, the, the, far, the fisherman who was there never looked at him the whole time he was preaching his sermon. Well, as I said, they went through everything. So at the end of the service, the pastor went back to the back of the auditorium and shook the man's hand as he was leaving. As the fisherman came up to him, he said, Reverend, I've been thinking about becoming a Christian for about 30 years, and today's the day. Opportunities. Opportunities. Here's the third thing that God gives. Resources. Resources. Most specifically, the Bible. We believe that the Bible is both the necessary and the sufficient tool that we have to speak to people about Jesus. The eunuch, as he is riding along here in his chariot, it's more like a wagon than a chariot, but the um, same word means both things. He's reading the book of Isaiah. 
text tells us. We read what he was reading. He must have been a very wealthy man to own his own personal reading copy of a portion of the Old Testament. I wonder if he's just gotten this in Jerusalem and he's been traveling so far and he's reading the book of Isaiah and he's made it up to chapter 53. Uh, Isaiah 53 is in, in a section of the book of Isaiah called the Servant Songs. It's the fourth of these servant songs. And he has a very important question. Who is this man that Isaiah is writing about. It was one of the great questions that the rabbis debated when they read Isaiah 53 in Jesus' day. Who is this person who's led like a sheep to the slaughter? Who is he talking about, this silent lamb? Who is this humiliated victim of injustice? And Philip answers the question and tells him, it's not Isaiah himself. It's not David, some people thought that. It's not... The nation of Israel itself, some people thought that. It's Jesus. Isaiah 53 is one of the most important passages in all the New Testament for understanding what happened on the cross. But interestingly enough, this section that Luke highlights doesn't point in in the direction of what we usually think of when we think of the cross. When we usually think of the cross, we usually think of Jesus suffering for us. His substitutionary death. I'm going to read Isaiah 53 a little bit later. We'll go over those verses. They're in there, but that's not the section of Scripture that is emphasized here. And I ask the question, why? And I think the reason why is because the book of Acts here is telling us why the Bible is such a useful, in fact, the sufficient tool that we use to speak to people about Jesus. These verses point us to and remind us of what the Bible does. Two things that the Bible does that are emphasized here. First of all, the Bible answers objections. It answers objections. What's here in this passage is a strong emphasis on the fact that Jesus is the innocent sufferer. That he was not guilty, but he suffered as a result of injustice. He was silent before the injustice. He was humiliated before the injustice. Now, why is that emphasis here in this text? Actually, that's one of the great themes of Luke 23. When, Je- when Luke describes Jesus' death, it emphasizes over and over again that Jesus had done nothing wrong, and yet he was still crucified. Now, why is that so important? Well, actually, the Apostle Paul tells us why it's important. The cross is the biggest stumbling block that he encountered in calling people to believe on Jesus. It was foolishness to the Greeks, It was a stumbling block to the Jews. And people thought, if Jesus Christ really is God's appointed representative, if he really comes from God, how is it possible that he would die such a horrible death? Because in this culture, reigning heroes don't make sacrifices. They're so full of power and so full of glory that it's not necessary for them to sacrifice themselves. They would think... When Paul and Luke and Philip would stand and preach the gospel, the people would think to themselves, if God really loved Jesus, why did he, he should have died on the cross. It doesn't make any sense. So there's this emphasis all the way through Luke's gospel and here in this passage that Jesus is the innocent sufferer. That's one of the objections that people raised in Paul's day, in Luke's day, to the gospel. Now, 
I'm not sure that that's necessarily true in our culture. People in our culture have different objections. See, our culture, the the shadow of the gospel is so significant in our culture that um, we actually don't have many heroes who haven't sacrificed themselves. We love, people don't realize this, they read gospel stories all the time. Gospel stories where the heroes sacrifice themselves. Um, Think with me for one of the stories that many of you know, the story of Harry Potter, right? Um, The plot of these novels of, of Harry Potter is the fact that Harry's mother sacrificed herself for Harry, protecting him from the evil wizard Voldemort. And that sacrificial love that Harry experienced marked Harry's life. In fact, it marked him physically. He's got that scar on his forehead. And it marked his life. It, it changed his life. Being the object of sacrificial love changed Harry Potter's life. And the whole novel, the whole series is about how this wizard is trying to overcome this mark of the sacrificial love that has been on Harry's life. People read gospel all the time. They don't know it. Uh, we love stories like this. They're Christ stories. But, but the Greeks and the, and the Jews... The cross was foolishness to them. And here, Philip is using Isaiah to overcome that objection by showing them that Jesus was an innocent sufferer. He did not go to the cross because God hated him or because he had done anything wrong, because there were deficiencies in him. So the Bible answers objections. I wonder what your, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder what your objection to the gospel is. I don't, I don't mean to insult you or anything, but um, you should realize that you're not the first person to raise the objections that you have. If you have a list of, of questions about uh, what the Bible teaches about Jesus and who he is and what he did, if you have, you have a list of, of objections, they're probably not original. I, I, don't, I don't mean to insult you, but um, we believe this book came from God and... Uh, he pre-anticipated your objections. Um, if, if you're using your questions just to keep from making a decision about Jesus, that's a very foolish thing to do. But if you have real questions, God probably thought of that beforehand. And just like he uses Isaiah 53 here to answer one of the objections they would have had in the first century, there are in this book answers to the questions that you have So the Bible is sufficient for us because it answers objections. It also is sufficient for us because it speaks to our deepest needs. It speaks to our deepest needs. Isaiah says this, Who can speak of his descendants? Verse 33. Or, to paraphrase that, What happened to his children? What happened to the generation of this suffering Lamb, this suffering sheep. He has no children because his life was cut off from the earth. Remember who's reading this text. This is a story about a eunuch. A man who's physically mutilated and will have no descendants. The Lord Jesus in his suffering identified with this man in his suffering. There is a Savior who knows the sorrows and griefs of life in this broken world. Not only does he know them, but he has borne them. The prophet Isaiah says, again, we'll read this in a few minutes, Jesus suffered for us 
on our behalf, in our place, taking in himself the, the, the penalty for sin that we deserved because of our rebellion against God. He has been our sorrow, pain, and grief, and injustice bearer. He died and he rose again. It's an important passage to think about here as we think about so many of the events that have happened in our own country in the last couple of weeks. We talked about this at length last week, but notice here, Jesus, this... Has anybody ever been this good and suffered this much injustice? The answer to that question is no. Isaiah 56, if, if uh, uh, the eunuch keeps reading in the book of Isaiah, he's going to find a passage that should give him great hope. Look at what Isaiah 56, 3 and 4 says. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree, I don't produce any fruit. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Jesus became the ultimate outsider so that anyone who is on the outside can come in. It doesn't matter who you are, separated and alienated from God because of your sin, you can become an insider because Jesus has become the ultimate outsider for you. Now the text tells us how the eunuch responded. He believes and he responds with this biblically mandated practice of baptism. Now as a Baptist, I must point a few things out about this passage. I'm a happy Baptist. I'm not angry with our Methodists and Mennonite brothers and sisters, but, but look here what happens. Uh, they uh, come and they, they, they see there's a water available, so that's what prompts the question, can I get baptized? Here's, here's a body of water. If Philip wanted to pour or sprinkle, surely this man had enough water in his skin or canteen that he could have baptized him anywhere. But they come to a sufficient amount of water and they both go down into the water. Uh, why did Philip go into... There's one commentator I read that said they walked in up to their waist and then Philip poured water on him. Why would Philip get his feet wet if that's all he's going to do? Well, it's a wonderful passage. That's not the most important element in this text. What I appreciate is it ends with joy, doesn't it? He got baptized and the Ethiopian eunuch, verse 39, went on his way rejoicing. Just like back in Acts chapter 8, verse 8, Philip went to Samaria and there was great joy in the city over his message. Joy produced by the work of the Holy Spirit. He who directs and opens doors and gives us what we need, this is his work. The question is, are we going to obey him in it? Follow his directions? Go through the open doors? Use the resources that he's, he's given us? Remember what Angie said. This is why I love being a Christian. It's heart-pounding scary at times and exhilarating when I see someone that I know Jesus wants to come to him and I have the choice to step out in faith or stay in security. Let's pray, shall we?
Father, we come before you this morning and we are glad to read this conversation and, and hear about how this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, now our, our brother in the faith because of his, his faith in Jesus Christ, um, how he heard the gospel and believed it and was baptized. That's really good news and we love to hear about this conversation. Father, we confess to you that we love to hear more about conversations about Jesus than we do, than we love to be involved in conversations about Jesus. We love to talk about telling the story and not telling the story itself. Lord, we confess that to you. We, we confess that it's, that it's easy in this room to talk about how wonderful it is to be witnesses for you, but, but as this young woman says, it's heart-pounding scary at times. Lord, I am thankful to you for the commission that you have given us. Most importantly, we are thankful to you for the Spirit of God who this week he will be involved in directing and opening doors and pushing us. Give us soft, obedient hearts to your work, we pray. We thank you for your passion, for our faithfulness in representing you. Help us to set our sails with the breeze that you send. You are good and kind to us, we who are at times slow and stubborn people. Thank you for your mercy. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.